Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Olivia. Hey, Micah. How's it going? Pretty good. No one will be able to tell whatsoever because these always come out on Friday, but we always record these Thursday morning to be productive. And today we're recording them Thursday evening. And so we uh, poured ourselves some delicious liquids and we're going to talk some darn type. Heck yeah, we are. We have lots of fun articles and links. We have a very fun nerd alert. Might I say the most fun nerd alert we've done yet? <laughs> that's a that's a big talk you got there. I mean, I just say the word interrobang and I'm already have some pep in my step. Okay, that's a tease, but uh, give us a real give us a real answer. What are we what are we talking about in our nerd alert today? So we are chatting about interrobangs and manicules. And if you don't know what a manicule is yet. That's why you have to stay tuned. And a couple uh, other obscure glyphs and characters we have. I think it's going to be like a fun, light week. Yeah. Yeah. Like it definitely cool links is. And, uh, you know, random nerdy topic. It'll be fun. It's definitely like a light week on type in design news, but it's fine because then you're going to just like see our true nerdy selves shine through to make up for all that. Totes. Totes McGoats. Alrighty, let's get started. Our first article, lovely, lovely article from I Love Typography, the blog. It's titled Make the Letter Bigger. And this is a beautiful article all about drop cap. Which I know you're a giant fan of. I think like any person that loves books loves drop caps. It's mm. and loves type because it's like the one moment where one letter gets blown up larger to be appreciated, but also to symbol some typographic hierarchy. That's true. And I just feel like a lot of times I will experiment with it personally just to be like, hey, you know what? Here's a little bit of jazz. Here's a little bit of fun, snazzy funness in an otherwise just article. Like type can be playful and fun. Yeah, yeah. It really takes you back to the history. I mean, we go back in this article all the way to pre- printing press era there's some really crazy drop caps at the beginning of this article they're drop caps made out of humans mostly doing all sorts of things and my oh my there's some weird stacking of humans on top of each other acrobatic things humans and animals getting involved to make a k i'll just i'll just leave it there you imagine the rest I mean, this actually coincides with an article that we had a couple months ago about how uh, seemingly obsessed typographers are with making letters out of human beings. I think a general fascination with infusing our ego into absolutely anything we possibly can. Absolutely. So, I mean, that that literally is just an introduction to the drop caps. They show you like the obviously very highly detailed drop caps, some drop caps that take up full pages they're the height of the full page you didn't think it was possible they made it possible (laughs) in medieval uh monasteries there's some just highly detailed ones beautiful ones like literally small paintings within drop cap drop caps so they talk about all the different terminology and why they were used and eventually how they became out of vogue i mean for a long time drop caps were like pretty much the 
only typographic hierarchy on a lot of pages. So that's why they were given so much attention. But now we have things like, you know, running heads, page numbers, all caps, small caps, indentation, where we have all these other tools at our expense. I also feel like, you know, it's just out of vogue. People aren't going to like laboriously work on drop caps. Um, but it was a really nice overview and something I've never seen written about before in such detail. Word. And it's, it's a very beautiful article too. The design for this article itself is very lovely. Before we get into the next article, I did want to give a nice shout out to some of the people who sent awesome emails last week. Yes. Last week we had talked about like kind of a few of our favorite design books and a bunch of people wrote in with cool suggestions of their own. Someone had brought up a great book called The Visual History of Type, which you can find on Amazon and is fascinating. And another one that I had never seen before, The World's Writing Systems by Peter T. Daniels. Uh, That looked interesting. I can't speak to it, but it was recommended by a fellow type nerd. And then there were other, there were a bunch of emails this week, which were cool because, you know, it's sometimes difficult to respond to all of the emails, but it is very cool. Like we read all of the emails and it's, it's fun to hear people's perspectives and additions. It was fun to hear from people. So keep writing in. Like, it's very fun. Even if we don't get a chance to write back to you, we love hearing from you. We truly do. And we do read the emails. Micah and I are just, especially this past couple of weeks, have been swamped. But we appreciate the feedback and um, responses nevertheless. Our next article, titled Penny Dreadfuls and Murder Broadsides, taught me about some history I had no idea about. Okay, so first of all, Micah, I only know the word Penny Dreadful from, like, that TV show that I don't watch. But, like, it was, it was a physical, they were books, Penny Dreadfuls. Do you know right. that? Yes, I guess I thought everybody knew that, but that now feels very obscure. I have a weird fascination with Penny Dreadfuls. I literally have one in front of me for like an old book of The Shadow. If anybody knows The Shadow, he's like a weird superhero. But they were like cheap comic books or like stories before comic books were what we know of comic books. A lot of them were just written stories uh, that were kind of fun and sensational and like, you know, murders and mysteries and drama in a fun, short, readable thing. They were like available in the 19th century. They were like Victorian time. Right, uh, right, right, right. It's when they, when that's when they started. Which, which for, for the record, The Shadow was not the 1800s. That was <laughs> no. like 1930s. But, you know, it kind of evolved as all things do. Yeah, so this article talks about kind of like the history of Penny Dreadfuls. I always find it so interesting. Um, when we talk about the development of typography, it's often dependent on the development of literacy. And so the Penny Dreadfuls actually came about because um, during the 19th century, literacy in England was just like moving to higher and higher rates. I mean, in the 1470s, literacy was under 10% in England. But by the 1830s, literacy was 66% for men, 50% for women. And then by 1900, it was 97% literacy. And so because so many people were reading, so many people were looking for outside forms of entertainment, I mean, that's when things like Penny Dreadfuls came about. That's when things like Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. a similar kind of genre comes about. So I love hearing about that. And so they talk about all the different stories that were created in this, and they show some really graphic – they show some really great <laughs> – graphic archival images i mean one of them is graphic because they make a specific reference to a character you might know of which is sweeney todd originated in a penny dreadful comic and if you don't know sweeney todd he was uh you know a fictional barber 
who loved to murder, and then his neighbor would make very popular pies out of his victims. They also talk about murder broadsides. I love how just like all in they go here. So broadsides <laughs> were like small posters, probably around like 11 by 17 or larger. So n- larger than like a normal pi- piece of paper we're used to today. Murder was this uh, sort of spectacle in the 1800s. Mm. And with um, public murders, there was broadsides that would list out like all the things that this murderer did wrong and would just like shame him on paper. <laughs> him or her <laughs> crazy and they right? like crazy they pass out these broadsides they're like souvenirs of the murder they had actual souvenirs for murder events this mug shown in the article was a souvenir for a murder as well so it's absolutely bonkers i mean on one hand it's not that different from like a movie or a television show that is hyperbolizing if that's a word modern day murders We've always been fascinated by it. But it's another thing to like pass out mugs. <laughs> you know? It is another thing. That is another level, I think. <laughs> um, there's a great paragraph in here that is labeled murder fonts and talks about all the different like wild fonts. Because Victorian type was just like uh, wild, crazy. The first sans serifs were made, wild. But I mean, there was like actually crazy type there as well. There was reverse contrast, fonts that we now consider like Western looking. And so all of these kind of wild array of um, different fonts were used to create these murder broadsides. And it's, it's just an interesting little, just like piece of history that's so obscure and weird, but entertaining for sure. I have to admit that like, I am obsessed with Victorian typography. That is that is my weakness. And it's fun just to even see the images of this. Besides the history, I think it's just interesting to see the way they handled, in real life, the typography in Victorian times. Yeah. Because it is so drastically different from the way we do things now. And there's enough yeah. differences that, frankly, it's sometimes hard to pin down what is different exactly. I also think that the modern interpretations of Victorian type is this like very polished, like very decorative Mm. over the top, very polished look. And to see actual archival pieces from Victorian times that are rough around the edges Mm. and like break a lot of type rules and are often probably have type that wasn't made to the highest standard, but was authentic is also great to see. That's a really interesting point. That actually seems like it could be a good future nerd alert just because that could go very in-depth. I mean, a lot of it was screen printed, of course, and letters are off kilter and awful spacing, messed up kerning. They were combining fonts that make no sense to combine at sizes that were sometimes they made no sense with spacing that made no sense. It's very interesting. My favorite piece of this article is, I'd say about like three quarters of the way down, the big words murder. I knew you were going to say it. I literally have that pulled up on my computer because I was like, I know this is what she's about to mention. So it's like murder if it was set in a a fat, fat bedoni, like a fat face, but the fat face had nice wooden flowers weaving in and out of the different uh, thick parts of the letter. So good. I do also love that. I feel like that's beautiful in all of its weirdness. And actually a little bit further down than that, I know we're going way too in depth, but there's uh, the life trial sentence and execution of John Gold. And the word execution there, it's 
very off kilter. It's obviously hand cut letters. The way that it's printed, you can see all these like imperfections. It reminds me of Trey Seals's work. Mm, you see that? Yeah, yeah. If you don't know Trey Seals, Trey Seals is an extremely talented type designer. He was in one of our type design classes a million years ago, and that was how we got to know him and have loved him ever since because he does these fascinating revivals of historic cultural fonts, taking things, taking like letters that were hand drawn on civil rights signs and other like protest signs and turning them into fonts that you can use now. And that's the kind of thing that I think that's why I love Victorian type so much. Like it's, it's almost all so imperfect and you can't help but feel like this is a unique one-off thing in every time that you look at it. And that's very difficult to mimic in our, with our current tool set. So anyway, we have nerded out on this article for a long time. But it's fun and you guys should look at the murder. Just look at the murder. (laughs) (laughs) Non sequitur. Now is probably an awesome time to talk about our sponsor. Thank you to Adobe. Adobe has been a sponsor of our podcast and they make a great suite of software. If you don't know them, you probably should because they make things like Photoshop and Illustrator and InDesign, all of which are like industry leading tools that are wildly useful for people who make and deal with type like all of us nerds. I had to do a very typographic heavy packaging project this week. And I can tell you, I was all up and down Adobe fonts. I was Mm. all up in Adobe fonts. Mm. It made it way easy and really appreciate the wide breadth of stuff. Because I had to do like handwriting fonts. I had to do sophisticated fonts. I had to do retro fonts. I was all over the map. I'm fascinated by this work that you do that that gives you such the ability to mess around with fonts so frequently. I tried to like slide a black letter into the designs, but I ended up getting rejected. It's okay. okay. (laughs) Actually though, while we're talking about Adobe, Adobe Max happened last week. It did. And Adobe Max is usually a conference that is fairly expensive to go to. And I think usually sold out. And because of everything happening this year, they brought the whole darn thing online. I have to admit, I didn't watch all of it. And so I was like watching some of the highlights. There was, there's a few controversial ones, such as they've introduced a lot of very interesting AI technology into Photoshop. Did you see this, Olivia? Nope, I didn't. They're calling them neural filters, presumably based off of, you know, neural net, which is a description of a particular type of artificial intelligence and machine learning. It's this, it's this crazy new panel in Adobe where they can like recognize, I don't know all of the extents of it because I only watch the highlights, but for instance, if you have a photograph of a face, you can dynamically, after the fact, change the lighting of the face. You can change the expression of the face. Okay, like, I saw one snap. I saw one screenshot of someone like changing the perspective of a face, and I was like, I hate this. I can't look at it. I know it's it's scary but fascinating. It's like yeah. you can you can shift someone from sad to happy. Yeah, and their AI will like do its best to fill in the details based on the pixels that it's looking at to adjust those things for you, and it's it's absolutely fascinating. It was, I mean, it, yeah, I didn't look, I didn't actually see any executions. I just heard about some of the concepts. I was like, oh, mind blown. Yeah. That's crazy. It could go in many directions. Our next article. 
from Ion Design is on a fun new typeface out in the world. It was released in September. It's called Maxi. I love the name. Adorable. And it's by the Foundry Dynamo, which we've covered before. They're a really wacky foundry pushing the limits on their website design, on their type design. When I say pushing the limits, I say pushing limits closer to like the art school level of limits. But, you know. I like this sentence from this article that says the new site is a delicious melange of strange post-internet 3D shapes and animations, emojis, huge orbiting brain planets and more. Like, oh, oh, just that? Cool. Yeah. I mean, that's a good description. But the font we're going to talk about today is Maxi. It's an adorable variable font that is so weird and quirky and like goofy. Um, It kind of reminds me of like Matisse cutouts. It's all over the place with thickness and weight. And I think you can change the weight. There's like cutouts of the counters. Like an A is just an, a triangle with a circle in it. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite character is the Y that looks like a dirty martini. Oh, it does. It looks like a Y, but it has a closed top and there's a circle. That's my olive. I feel like a lot of these could be made into drinks. Ooh, that'd be fun. Um, uh, one of the other things that I thought was interesting that was pointed out in this article is talking about the way that they are licensing, which I yeah. hadn't really noticed before. And so they said that it's to address the unfairness that the foundry saw in small companies paying the same amount for a font as a far larger one. And so they're talking about how, you know, it's basically a normal font license for this sort of thing would be how many machines you intend to install it on, which of course we're not all totally honest about, especially at a big company. It's kind of like, yeah, we'll only have one designer working on it at a time, but not really. And so they're actually, when you buy it, I guess, asking, the company size like how many employees are there rather than how many people are you gonna how many machines are you gonna install this on which is interesting i think that makes it easier for everyone you don't know how many designers or computers a font's gonna be used on until it's being used and usually by that point like if you're far past the limit it's too late so i don't know this makes sense i i think it's an interesting novel idea it's a little tough because i think we have to at some point address the fact that fonts this is i don't know that i should say this but fonts are not really considered extremely valuable in terms of money in the industry a lot of times we are very price conscious when we are looking to buy fonts clients are very price conscious when you're talking about adding a font into the budget for even a large priced project it's just like always fonts end up at the bottom of the barrel with money i think that's true i do think that's true from the projects i've worked on there's certainly is never a font budget at the beginning of a project there's too many other things to worry about Mm. so yeah it doesn't mean that designers don't value fonts in the usage in design for sure i know that everybody does we all do but the monetary value ends up a weird sticky topic I do feel like clients see like only two sides. It's like, I don't want to pay for a font or like, I want my own font. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem like-, like pretty extreme, right? You know what? I would also argue, somebody's going to hate that I'm talking about this, but I would also argue that our agreement on, on that other end of the spectrum of like, you know what? I'd rather just have my own font. Like that is 
also pushing us towards fonts as a commodity because we're like, well, I want my own. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which surely the thought process behind actually making that happen is significantly different than just being like, I want my own, you know, in a real context, in a company who's paying for a custom branding font or something. But I'm sure that that's where a lot of the seeds of these things start. And that kind of makes it seem like, well, fonts aren't that crazy. Like, let's just make one. Anyway, I'm I'm all about tangents today. And I apologize. Okay. Our next article, I'm just going to chuckle at and not take too seriously because I'm slightly offended by it. But like, it's <laughs> fine. It's fine. It is from Creative Boom. I actually really like Creative Boom. And it's titled, Why These Top Graphic Designers Moved Into Visual Design and UX fun for them i'm happy for them (laughs) oh i'm okay i mean (laughs) for anybody who has been listening for a long time which i feel like is is a lot of great humans that we talk to but you know us pretty well like olivia is an extremely talented graphic designer she works in a lot of like print mediums and real life mediums and i'm a dummy when it comes to that kind of stuff but I'm good at all the like app design, product design, that kind of thing. Like that's my history. And so (laughs) I even have to kind of laugh at this idea because like, it's true that a lot of designers are breaking into UX and UI because there's a lot of obscene money in software products these days. Like crazy VCs putting billions of dollars into a product that doesn't even have a pricing strategy. And they're just like, we need the best designers in the industry. And so like UX and UI as a segment of the industry has boomed. It's just something about the way the way that this is written that's kind of funny. It's literally like, here are seven reasons why all these designers abandon ship in graphic <laughs> design. And they're like, wow, like UI UX just makes me be a better thinker. Like, wow, I'm just um just opening myself up to so many opportunities and so much more money than before. And it just goes on and on. <laughs> There are I mean, a couple that, that are like, I still like graphic design. It's cool. <laughs> it's not like graphic design isn't still a fundamental piece of our society. You know what I mean? I guess. And I like some of these reasonings because like number six, when the pieces align, it's magic. Like that's true. However, that's also true when you're doing anything else. As much as we're teasing this and making fun of it, I'm sure there's somebody out there on the newsletter being like, I've been wanting to get into UX and UI and I just, I don't know if I have it in me. Like maybe I'm not good enough or something. And like, this is the kind of article that you read and you're like, you know what? Maybe I could do it. And I like that. All right, Micah. I truly did think I was going to get a sound this week. I bet (laughs) if I would have said something yesterday, I would have gotten a sound. What we're we're talking about, if you haven't heard, is uh, we have this nerd alert section every week, and we've been joking for eight months. Okay, we're we're like four months. No way. Four months? I'm bad at time. Whatever. Yeah, we, yeah. Olivia's significant other is a very talented musician, sound designer, and was going to make us a nice little thing, and we've been, we've been, We've been not having a sound for this section for the entire time. Okay, guys, nerd alert. This week we're talking about Intero bangs and manicules. Okay, sidebar. I have a lot of content here. 
I'll sh- I have double the content that I usually have. Can we please leave that in? Yeah. <laughs> do I do both of them? Oh, yeah. Here we go. Uh, yeah, well, it's quite a bit. Okay, so this week we are talking about a little bit of history and interest behind interrobangs and manicules. Both of these are like kind of obscure punctuation marks, right? That uh, you maybe only come across every once in a while, but are super cool. And one of your favorite things, Olivia. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we thought it'd be fun to like teach you about these random, rarely seen, but useful punctuation marks and a little bit of background about them. So an interrobang is like a cult favorite of the type community. I'll start with the Latin origin that makes sense when you think about what it is. It comes from the Latin interrogatio, mm. translating to a rhetorical question and the English word bang into one word. So intero, like interrogation, interrobang. What do, where's the bang come from? What's the bang? The bang is a slang word for an exclamation mark. Mm, okay. Sounds like a British thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, bang. How would this? Bang, bang. <laughs> um, yup. <laughs> so, an interior bang is actually a hybrid of a question mark and an exclamation point in one symbol. So, instead of being like, where are my keys? Question mark, exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point. You do one symbol and it basically is like a little exclamation vertical is fit into a question mark, into the curve of the question mark. So it's just okay. one symbol. It's like a, as hybrid as you can think of it. That's kind of like how if you've ever written dot, dot, dot to kind of trail off a sentence, you know, that's an ellipses and you can, there's actually usually an actual symbol for an ellipses that is three symbols drawn into one glyph. This is kind of similar where you might have written a sentence ending with an exclamation point and a question, but there's actually a symbol for it. I would love if word processors would just automatically make a question mark and an exclamation point uh, interrobang. The way it does with like two hyphens into an mm, M dash. You say word processors. Isn't that also available in font technology? Isn't that a ligature? Mm, I see. I see what you're saying. Surprised that's not a more frequent thing. Yeah, good point. So Interrobang was created by the ad world, dreamt up by the Madison Avenue exec, Martin K. Spector, in the 60s, of course, the height of advertising. He was the editor of Type Talks, which was a journal discussing the use of type in advertising. He was annoyed and frustrated at seeing copywriters using this, like, jerry-rigged exclamation point question mark situation in copy, which is, like, so funny. Like, they would put that everywhere in the 60s like i don't see that ever in advertising and so he wrote this whole article arguing for this one symbol to replace it all and he had an art director drop a few proposals and he asked the readers to submit their names for it so it wasn't actually called interrobang but a bunch of readers submitted stuff like the emphaquest the interropoint the exclarogative oh my gosh a mouthful and so it like definitely gained popularity in american media throughout the 60s um so much so that it was introduced in some typewriters that were released then and also featured in the typeface americana which was the first instance of a mass marketed typeface within the bank that was released in 1967 so you know it was controversial obviously people were really excited to use it it was new it was novel but at the same time there's like literary purists one said 
We need plain words to express plain truths. The only trouble is that nobody uses them anymore. People were like, oh, this is a terrible thing from the ad world. So over the top. I think ultimately what led it to extinction was that you couldn't have an interrobang in a linotype machine. The largest type of machines to do printing of novels and newspapers and books had a limited amount of characters. And to trade out a traditional character with an interrobang didn't seem like the right decision to them. So it was kind of just left out of linotypes. It was left out of a lot of photo lettering. It has come back a little bit with digital fonts because we have basically an unlimited amount of characters. Mm. Um, it is considered a character by Unicode, which is the standard computer character set. And, you know, it's become definitely a cult symbol for typophiles. I looked up some fonts where it's available. It's available in Word Wingdings 2. Nice. And versions of Calibri, Helvetica, and Palatino. So you can no longer hate on how boring Calibri is. It has an interrobang. <laughs> I hate Calibri. <laughs> okay. That was fun. Our next one, the manicule. The original highlighter. That's how I would define it. Because it would like be an extra annotation to your text. So I think most people actually see the manicule today in signage, whether you're like a hotel or a concert venue or someplace that wants to show their quirkiness. A manicule is like the illustrated hand that's typically cut off on the cuff. Oh, interesting. Okay, now I can picture it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I feel like I'll see that in like vintage signage or like places that want to seem vintage. But it was actually widely used in a lot of medieval books and in the Renaissance era. And it was so interesting. Someone that has widely studied manicules said that between the 12th and 18th century, the manicule was the most common symbol produced both for and by readers in the margins of manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Now it's nearly nowhere to be seen. Because you you rarely see that hand like within printed text these days. That's true. Uh, but it used to be part of printed text and before movable type, it was part of a book's design. Annotating books was a huge practice for scholars back in the Renaissance era and med- medieval times. They even had a really nice quote in the book I was reading, Shady Characters, which outlines so much of this history, saying that books were just like this huge undertaking to produce. They were so, so precious that books were not so much bought as project managed into existence. <laughs> That was hilarious. To show that you were a devotional reader, you annotated the heck out of your book. Just everywhere you could was your writings. And so if you thought something was particularly interesting, poignant, you would put a little hand near it. You would put a marking, and that marking was a hand. That makes a lot of sense. I do that, you know, naturally with, like, little arrows or chevrons or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so um, it's so interesting. And manicules have really... I've always varied a lot. I think now we have this like classic manicule in our head for like whatever vintage sign we're thinking of right now. But it was a lot of the readers that wrote the manicule. So, you know, the manicule could look however you wanted, but it often changed with the fashion. So the sleeve could have certain ornamentation that would reflect maybe Victorian fashion. The manicule that we see now most popular is a suit wearing businessman Mm. to like kind of convey like the sobriety that we've gotten in our fancy attire. (laughs) what's another word for fancy attire oh that was perfect oh okay makes me think like where are our female hands i've never seen a female manicule that's a time that's an interesting point i don't i mean i i have to admit i've never considered the gender of a manicule when i saw it but i have to be honest like there's never anything explicitly feminine 
about it. And so that mm -hmm. is sort of a presumed masculinity. So where can I take the future of the manicule? We shall see. It definitely had a mini renaissance in the 19th century in advertising typography for like subheads, which makes sense. I think of that sort of vernacular. But then also in the 19th century, it was used for concert venues, shops, and hotels, which is how we more, more regularly see it being referenced. Um, and then it kind of became out of favor. But the manicule is still being used by the USPS on their stamp for returning to sender. Really? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see so little physical mail that I, that's news to me. I found that out. There's a Flickr group devoted to it. If you go to Flickr.com slash groups slash manicule, you'll see a lot of other manicule enthusiasts. <laughs> so fun. So we're going to wrap this up. There's a few other fun punctuation marks I want to mention before we call it Ooh. a day. Well, let's get started with uh, the least fun one is a <laughs> percantation point. Per what the heck is that? A percontation point, P-E-R-C-O-N-T-A-T-I-O-N. Um, it was meant to punctuate rhetorical questions, uh, 1575. It looked like a reversed question mark. Interesting. I love how many times people have tried to make an irony mark to mm. indicate irony. So You've told me about this before, and I'm fascinated. So weird, like even more obscure than Intero Bangs and Manicules. In 1668, English philosopher john wilkins wrote this whole essay called essay towards a real character in a philosophical language and he tried to introduce this mark for irony called the irony mark it was an upside down exclamation point yeah and his reasoning for this being used for irony is that the presence of an exclamation mark already modifies the tone of a statement which makes sense. In like our mind, we read an exclamation point, we see it modified. And then an upside down one suggests an inversion of the meaning, which I thought was like a clever reasoning for it. I guess. I don't know if I'd buy that. I, I think it's nice to think up philosophically. <laughs> if I'll be on his philosophical level, I don't know if I really see that in use. But it's tough to imagine how to visually invert a sentence. Like, what do you mean? I mean, you know, we're talking about inverting the the tone right like mm -hmm. of a sentence that you've said how to do that visually without some totally arbitrary mark feels impossible yeah like you have think... to like you have to come up with some arbitrary mark that you just assign that meaning to and if i mean this is exactly what happened like if it doesn't become popular to assign that meaning to an arbitrary symbol then everybody's just like i don't know what i'm looking at yeah that's true. I think it wouldn't fare well in the global world we live in today, where an upside-down exclamation point is used at the beginning of a sentence uh, mm, in true. many Spanish-speaking languages. So, he didn't think of that. Um, <laughs> take that, John Wilkins of 1668. Slacker. So, I, there's also this argument that, like, have more faith in your readers to pick up on your irony. Ooh. Mm, I kind I of, like I think, yeah, I have to back that one. I also found out that there's this, like, small christmas tree like symbol that was once used as a uh, irony mark mm, <laughs> it is irony point in french everybody <laughs> um that's got to be ironic on some level yeah yeah that is it's a tough word and then finally we're taking it to the modern day uh the awesome foundry underwear who we've just recently talked about because they presented a type weekend um was commissioned for a book festival in the netherlands to create an irony symbol they called it the irony tekken irony tekken i'm definitely pronouncing that's that tough wrong. i'm very bad at 
uh, Dutch. And that was a really fun one. It was kind of like a lightning bolt exclamation point. What? That's a cool symbol. Yeah, it was cool. I love underwear, so I think that's awesome. And then finally, let's end with the Sark Mark, developed in Michigan by Paul and Douglas J. Sack, an engineer and accountant, father-son duo, created a Sark Mark, which is like an upside, a backward six with a point in the middle, kind of like a spirally. A backward six with a point in the middle. Yeah. I love that it took two people. Yeah, I love it's a father-son. They made a great commercial for it. You can find out mar- more at sarkmark.com. Highly recommend checking out the commercial. I sent it to Micah this morning as his homework for this episode. She sent it to me and said, this is homework. Watch this before we record it. And I thought it was very serious. It is nowhere near serious. But it'll make you laugh. And we can it all sure use will. a laugh these days. Yep, it was fantastic. All right, Micah. I did it all. I skipped I skipped some of the nitty-gritty deets, but reach out to me if you're also a manicule or an interrobing <laughs> enthusiast like I am. I'm curious too if anybody just like knows of some obscure thing that uh we didn't come up with in our research just because it's fun. Does anyone like have an idea for a new punctuation mark? I mean, like Ooh. it's so funny because all these punctuation marks um or glyphs went extinct because of technological barriers but like now with the internet anything is possible i would argue that's not that can't possibly be the only reason that they did not catch on (laughs) i mean there's like other reasons but i think it's so interesting like there are so many characters like emojis for example Mm. that like we have already learned how to read even if it's not a literal representation of what it is it's a distribution problem in my mind. Okay. It's it's the fact that at the time of the majority of these, which are all different times, but there wasn't an easy, quick way to distribute this in front of everybody so that they would, if they didn't know what it was, they would have to ask and then start using it. Mm. Now we have that. So that's what you're talking about with like a technological issue, right? But mm-hmm. uh, if you think of, all of the emojis that exist, how many emojis are there in that list that exist that we still don't use? Mm, That's true. But like, okay, for example, if let's say before emojis existed um, and you can't bold or italicize something like in your texts, Mm. I see like me and my friends will put the tildes on either side of a word, like little squiggles. Mm Mm-hmm. For to what? Represent, like what? emphasis on that word. That's interesting, because also you know in my world of of programmers and developers and whatnot, like Markdown has become a very popular format, which I know I forced you to start using a little bit, uh, which is a way to describe formatted text in a plain text way. And so rather than tildes to make something bold or emphasized, it would be asterisks. Mm. around the word and to make something underlined you do either more asterisks or underscores but i i mean i'm agreeing with you like it's it's interesting that we kind of fill in our own way to describe things as the subtext when we don't have the means to emphasize or or otherwise like creatively describe it visually but there's got to be some, I mean, there's some other reason here culturally that these things did not catch on. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I'm not pretending to be an expert here. I'm just saying like, 
we don't use them and i don't think it's totally a technological distribution problem okay i've just thought of one i'd like to invent Mm, okay okay so i'm in i use exclamation points way too often in my emails (laughs) i'm like that girl that doesn't want to come off as super cold and so to make myself sound as cheerful as I am in person, I like over exclamation mark my mm. my stuff to a point where I have to read read my emails and then take out exclamation marks and put them in strategically. So yep. I want something Relatable. that can do that for me without being an exclamation mark. Well, that's tough. Like I want it. <laughs> <laughs> that's so interesting though, because like in in verbal speak, you are excited. So yeah. like an exclamation point is on point. Thank you. But, but I agree, it seems absolutely silly when you're reading it and every <laughs> sentence ends with an exclamation point. I do that too. It's like we're a freaking little smiley face I'll throw in there all the time. Uh, that is what I have found myself doing a lot in the last couple of years is putting in way too many emojis. You, uh, you're, you're rubbing off on me. I do that too. I do like subject line with like little celebration emoji, little <laughs> star emoji. And I have my go-tos. I'm sure everybody does. Of yeah, I love, I love the hands. Like ooh, praise. You, you know. You love a good star. You love a. Oh yeah, the little sparkles. And the sparkles. Mm-hmm. You like. And those. there's a little, there's a little man who's either like leaning forward excitedly or with his hands raised. And both of those seem excited to me. So I use those in place of exclamation points to be excited without having every sentence end with an exclamation point. Anyway, this was a very fun time for us. Hopefully you enjoyed it too. I was really appreciative of everybody who wrote in with their book recommendations. And I would love to hear if anybody has some cool ideas for nerd alert topics that we should cover. Olivia, I still think we should do something on Unicode because I just think the history of that must be fascinating. Whenever you remind me of it, I'm like, yes, maybe next week. Maybe yeah, next week. we'll see. We'll see. But uh, if anybody has any cool ideas of things that you would love to hear us chat about or have some opinions about, hit us up because we love hearing from you. Yes, please. All right. Such a good time with you, Micah. Likewise. See everyone next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.